say good morning to them. <laughs> Shall we send those around? Okay. Good morning. Bokatov. Um, oh. Oh, okay, yeah, I just want to make sure it's not, keep it away from the machines. Um, Has anybody got tissue? Sharon, have you got tissues over there? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just. Oh, yeah. There we go. Okay. Uh, oh, someone's coming on. Good. Hello, good morning. Yeah, yeah, it's double-sided. Yeah. Um, firstly, I just want to say thank you again for uh, inviting us to be here, inviting myself, and uh, it's always a good excuse uh, for Mahler to come out as well. Um, I also want to dedicate the sheer memory of my father-in-law, uh, Professor Manny Lehman, Sichron Levracha, whose yacht site was uh, on Sunday, Kafbet Tevet, uh, passed away 12 years ago. He, very unique man. I, I'm not going to say a lot because there is a lot to say, but I will just say one thing. Those who come from the States who know um, the motto, the uh, creed of Yeshiva University, Torah Mada. Uh, this is something that Rabbi Lam wrote a whole book about it. Um, and it became very popular, I think, in the 60s and 70s. My father-in-law was doing Torah Mada way before it became a creed. Uh, a man of science, a man of computers. He built the first computer in Israel, the hardware. Uh, he was on the project to build it. It's, it's in a, uh, some sort of storehouse somewhere in, in Weitzman, uh, in Rehovah, somewhere in the basement. Uh, they called it the Sabrak, believe it or not. Very, very original uh, name. Uh, those days, obviously, computers were about defense, and uh, that was his uh, commitment. And at the same time, he also uh, spent many, many hours uh, in, with his Dafyomi. He must have gone through Shas. We, we estimated him maybe at least six, seven times. Uh, extraordinary man, and he's truly missed. Um, and uh, we should dedicate the shim in his memory, Tezik from Baruch. I want Baruch. to mention that he was a very, very humble man. He was an absolute genius. He was so humble. If you saw him walking in the street, yeah. there's stories. Yeah, there's a lot of Another stories. That's Torah in Derek Eretz. And uh, if you want me to give a share on the difference between the two, that's a whole... That, it's not a share. That's that's a, that's a course for another another occasion. Uh, it's it's. Uh, he wasn't a rabbi, a professor. He lived in London. He originally started off in London, then came on Aliyah in '56, and lived here for for eight years. My wife knows Hebrew from from as a, as a child, so she was good in in the candy store, but not very good in the bank because at ten she left Israel. Uh, has learned how to deal with the banks since then. Um, and then they went to the States. He lived in uh, uh, Riverdale for uh, eight years in, uh, in New York, and then uh, went to London, became head of department in Imperial College, which is the MIT of London, basically. So he was really high up in, that, in the academic world. And then came an Aliyah in um, 2006 and passed away in 2011. And that's I've just about, I hope I've covered the bases, but very... And, of course, from Germany, and that's my... That my yichus is to be connected to someone whose mother came from Frankfurt. It really, she was a very special lady. Um, talk about her, but that's for another occasion. Um, 
All right, as you can see on the page, we're looking at Pasha Vaira, and Pasha Vaira is a, uh, again, so uh, not just full of information, but information that we've gone through. But my, my task, I think, is always to highlight elements, either based on uh, Shurim that I've heard or Sephorim that I, I particularly like, and to show you a little bit of a, uh, a different view on things that you know. I mean, we all know the, the templates, all right? And of course, <laughs> just have to share a story, very simple, very quick story, that uh, about 12 years ago, I was on a trip to London, and there was a rabbi in London, I hope he's still around, it's called Rabbi Ari Forter. Yes, uh, lived yes. in Golders, lives in Golders Green, if I'm not mistaken, in London. Now, he was offering at the time uh, guided tours to around the British Museum. Now, the British Museum is a phenomenal, phenomenal collection uh, they have a collection of Egyptology there, which is quite extraordinary. But you don't see it. It's not on the main floor. Uh, you have to be taken downstairs into the vault. Uh, the vault I, went on for a mile. I've never seen anything like it. Right under London, I, there's obviously a story to the, to the whole building, which I don't know. But uh, if you're ever in London, it's the thing to go and do is to go to the British Museum if you can. Ideally, with a guided tour. The, the academic that we met is, was an expert, not Jewish an expert on Egyptology. And it's so interesting to me that with all the, um, I would call it the, the apicorism around the world, who doubt the stories of Torah, and they make, you know, write books about how this could never have happened or whatever, when you speak to people who study Egypt, they are mamini. It's unbelievable. This guy was such a mamin, the guy that we met, that he was prepared to show us stuff. He said, it's not on public display. He showed us a brick with a straw sticking out. He said, this was a brick that they found from Egypt, approximately 3,000 years old. I mean, wow, there you go, you know, bricks with straw. And he showed us a stick, which actually was in the shape of a snake. You know, the famous story with the mater, and it became a snake. And, then, and he said that was an Egyptian symbol. And it's, it's amazing, amazing, amazing stuff that he showed us. Um, I think very much of uh, Rabbi Slivkin, what he's doing here. And uh, the British Museum is kind of a predecessor for that kind of approach where if you study the background and the in interesting information of, um, of the societies that where Jews live, particularly in the ancient world, you come up with connections which embellish our, our learning of the Chumash. And this is just one example. And I could have gone on a lot about this, but, but I do want to deal with uh, two things today, and this is, this is part one. It's uh, taken from a book by somebody called Yisachar Jacobson, Jacobson. Now, Rabbi Jacobson, I don't think is alive anymore, but his books were classics before Oscar came along. His books were already translated from Hebrew to English. Back in the, I think in the 60s, they were being translated. He wrote a sefer on Torah, Bina Bermikra. He wrote a sefer on the uh, Haftarot, which is fabulous, and he wrote uh, an amazing sefer on the Sidur. Right, a great time of Chacham. I don't know his background. I didn't get a chance to Google the information, but his name, Rabbi Socha Jakobson. And again, his Sefer on Torah, he brings on the Esa Makot, or the Seven Makot, this week's parasha, he brings at the beginning something extraordinary. He says that, I want to share with you one of the interesting uh, things that he, he heard from a, an Egyptologist, a friend of his, by the name of Professor Yehuda. Now, I knew a Professor Yehuda in, in Boca Raton in America. 
not the same, not the same guy. Uh, may have been related, right? But this was a professor, Aleph Shin Yehuda. So whatever Aleph Shin stands for, Avram Shmuel, I don't know what, what his name was. But the reality is, he brings a very, very interesting analysis of the Esemakot with the, with the prefix or the question, which is, in terms of the function of the Esemakot, the ten plagues, we know that they were a judgment on the Egyptians, right, for what they did to Amisra. And the only, the only plague which is there to bring the Jews out was really the tenth plague, the plague of, of Bechorot. But before you get to that, it says also that it was a judgment against their gods. Yeah, um, you've got here on the page that you have in front of you, uh, section A, a little bit of Egyptology. Um, it says in the Pasuk, this is actually next week's Pasha, uh, with all the gods of Egypt, I have done, I have done Shvatim judgment. I've made judgment against the gods of Egypt. And the, he, uh, in this quote over here, uh, which you have as section A, uh, it's actually a quote from the Ramban. And the Ramban says, I underline the end of the first line, V'lo Right? We're not actually expel it doesn't spell out so clearly what the judgments were against the gods. Against the Egyptians, yeah, it spells it out. But against their gods, what were the judgments? How did they get judged in terms of their gods? How were their gods afflicted in the way that we understand? Now some of it is pretty obvious to us because we learn about uh, the Red Sea, uh, sorry, the, the, the plague of blood in the Nile, not the Red Sea, the Nile. And the Nile was obviously a very important source of uh, irrigation for the Egyptians, and that was afflicted. But, okay, we sort of make a jump from uh, that to assuming that that was one of the gods of Egypt, and maybe with a bit more reading around the subject, we'll come to a more uh, educated, academic, let's call it academic point of view. It's not saying we're wrong about that, but I'm going to talk about the plague of Kinim, which is particularly interesting. And this is the paragraph at the bottom of the page. It's fascinating that this became the breaking point for the Khartoumim. Remember, there was magicians, and they could reproduce the blood, and they could reproduce the frog. Came to the Kinim, what did they say? Etzba Elohim, he's the finger of God. Right? What is, that, what is the significance of that phrase? always wondered about that. You know, what were they say? It's, I mean, it's, it's strange. Right? We normally talk about Yad Hashem, the hand of God. They said Etzba, it's the finger of God. And we make a big clay in the Haggadah, Etzba and Yad, and all the Makot at the, um, uh, at the Yom Suf, etc., etc. But what's this Etzba Elohim? What is that all about? So, you've got to open up a book on Egyptology. Believe it or not, you'll get the answer. And the answer comes like this, and it's at the bottom of the page. I'm just going to read for a little bit of this paragraph from Rav Jakobson as he's quoting his friend, Professor Yehuda. It's just a little tidbit, but I thought it's something a little bit off, off the norm, but very revealing. He says, He says, what is so interesting, um, says Rabbi Jacobson at the bottom paragraph, I can answer questions which nobody seems to be able to answer. He has barata What's going on with the lice? And the question, of course, is, if we talk about hygiene in Egypt, in Egypt 4,000, 3,000 years ago, one has to assume that lice was a continual problem, right? They didn't, maybe didn't bathe the way that we bathe today, and they didn't have the, the hygiene and the cleanliness. So why was the plague of lice particularly damaging in terms of the Egyptians if they had to live with this the whole time? 
It's like something which they get, maybe they got it on steroids, but still you, are, you wonder why this, this was particularly damaging and why the Khartoumim, that's when they had to pull away and they said, that's by looking. What's going on? So the second line, listen to this. Fascinating. Why did this play come? Hello, Echina. Sorry, Akina. The, the Kina, the, the lies. It's, it's there the whole time. They must have been living with it constantly. Why were the, um, the magicians so weakened by the plague of lies? Fascinating question. He says, Where they could do with the other plagues, they couldn't do with the lies. What's going on? The fifth line, what does it mean? This is the finger of God. Me, uh, sorry, he says like this, Ki, Maybe this is an Egyptian phrase. The finger of God, not necessarily referring to God in the, in the terms of Hashem. They also had God. And they would recognize that, that phrase, meant something in Egyptian terminology. Now this is where you get into something which is truly fascinating. He says like this, if you read about uh, the Egyptian uh, idolatry, he says they write about the occasional battles that the idols would have one against the other. Right? And again, I'm taking all this on face value, but I'm sure if you're in the British Museum and you have the Egyptologist sitting there, he'd probably back this up 100%. He says like this, the end of the sixth line, underline, Let's say there's a fight amongst the gods. And one god was, was going to conquer the rest of the, of the land, if that's what, what was going on. You have this in Greek mythology for sure, but even by, in, in the Egyptian uh, world as well. What did the god do to win? Lavash Tzurat Chazir. He put on a, some sort of mask, which was like a pig. How would he defeat the other god? By poking him in the eye. Go figure. Isn't that interesting? That was the way that he did it. That was the symbol. Etzbalokim is like, it's a, you know, a poke in the eye. Mini Oz, so from that moment, Haya let's use the word that is secular here, when they would refer to the finger of God, Lishnina Bifid Misraib became a byword. It was a, it was a phrase in Egypt. It would describe something which happened. They couldn't explain how it came about. Because that would, they would refer to gods having a fight. That's the way they explain if there was an earthquake or there was something happening. Who knows? And what they would say, that would be. Couldn't get rid of it. They would call it Etzba Elohim. This is their definition, the finger of a god with a small g. They said, okay, but how do we explain the, the lice being so devastating? He says, you have to know the Khartoumim were the upper level in Mitzrayim. They were like the priests. In fact, they probably were priests. And when you go, and I saw this in the British Museum, the Egyptian priests, you see these images, the Tutankhamun exhibitions and all the rest of it, the priests, and maybe Pharaoh as well, was very smooth. They literally shaved off all the hair of their body. This was part of their religious preparation to, to do their idolatry. And if you see them with beards, you should know those beards were false. 
right? Those images, they wore a string and they wore a false beard. Something to do, again, with their idolatry. And all of this I remember hearing in the lecture that I sat through in the British Museum. But what he says here is fascinating. He says, as soon as lice came onto their bodies, they couldn't become priests anymore. Because they became defiled. In their terms, not in our terms, in their terms. So if they are defiled in their terms, what did they do? They had to come out of their temples, and they had to come out of their places of worship, and they had to hide away. So the Har Tumim, by definition, the, the, the men who were affected by lies, that became devastating because it undermined everything that they stood for. They stood for absolute cleanliness, absolute worship, absolute connection to their God, smooth, nothing intervening, as we would say, no chasitza, no interruption, and all of a sudden their bodies are covered with lies. And this was, and, and the same thing it says by Shechin, the same thing. Because they were covered with boils again, they were so affected by it. This diminished their connection to their God. It undermined not only the Egyptian, but it undermined their God, and it undermined the whole worldview, the Weltanschauung of the Egyptian society. Fast, unbelievable. Okay, and again, I, I, I share this with you. Just go to page two. I'm not going to go through the whole paragraph, but I just want to show you the end, what he says here. It's, it's truly remarkable. On the, on the flip side, it's page two, just the, the, uh, the, the, the other side of that page. And I'm just going to show you the third line down. Where it's, oh, sorry, the second line down at the, uh, uh, the middle of the line. They had to be so pure and clean. That was their preparation for serving their God with a small g. Now they were covered in lice. And every animal had it. And the animals were also important in their worship. Even the animals that were made holy. That's something they can never conceive. They couldn't imagine such a plague. And they couldn't work out where this came from. That's their phrase. This is the God poking the eye. You know, it's, it, it's the God of the Hebrews coming along and putting his finger in the eye of our God. Unbelievable. And that's the phrase, that's by Elohim. You can't um, now uh, have a competition with the God of Israel. And again, he talks about the Makat Shechin, etc. Just go to the last two lines. Not just the Egyptians were afflicted, but the whole Weltanschau, everything that believed in. And that's the punishment, not only against Egypt, but against their gods as well. Another example how the gods were completely undermined, belittled, and in essence destroyed. Fascinating. And... I share it with you, you know, I, I, I wasn't looking for this, you know, I'm looking for what I call more traditional stuff, but this came out of the Sefer, which is a very beautiful Sefer, essays on the Parsha, and they're really outstanding. And I saw this, I thought, I've I got to share this with the, I hope, <laughs> I, I always care for, I don't want to offend anybody here, I don't want to sort of go out of the box too much, but this is fascinating, it's a phrase that I really have not understood with a little bit of Egyptology, as I called it at the beginning, all of a sudden takes on a whole new meaning. How interesting is that? 
and understand the, uh, the worship of Egypt. And as I said, there's a lot more to read, a lot more to go into. Uh, the only place I've come across Egyptology after that is the Malbim. Malbim read uh, a lot about Egypt. He writes about it in, in uh, Sefer Melachim, when he talks about uh, Yeravam. He says Yeravam's uh, two gods that he set up, if you know the story there, after he broke away from Shlomo, and where did he get the concept? He said he got it from Egypt, because Yeravam spent a lot of time in Egypt. And he also, Malbim obviously read about this stuff as well. Right? And it's fascinating. I remember teaching this, um, the Malbim over there, and I got a present from one of my students, a book on Egyptology. She found it. She said it was two bucks. It was in the, in the store, you know, what do they call it? You know, the way you... Second-hand store. Second-hand store. But she said, I, she thought of me when she saw the book, and she bought me a present. I've still got the book. It's a very, very interesting book. Um, again, I, I'm not saying that this should be a priority in your life, so go and study Egyptology, but fascinating thing, uh, certainly uh, a bit of enhancement from a, a completely outside source to something that we all know, the phrase, etzba elokim. That's part one. That's part one. Part two, much more traditional, what I called spiritual cardiology. Sorry for the people uh, who are cardiologists in the audience, but uh, if, if there's anybody here, uh, or some of you connected, the reality of spiritual cardiology, what I, obviously I'm talking about is the hardening of the heart. Right? That is something which gives um, so many Mephorshim a real, real challenge. Um, it's here, it's in the Rambam, and it's, on, it's section B on the second page. And I just want to go through this because, again... Absolutely fascinating. Rambam in Hilchot Tshuva. And there's a beautiful analysis of Soloveitchik about Hilchot Tshuva goes four chapters about Tshuva, two chapters, chapters five and six, about free will, and then the rest about, about Tshuva again, Tshuva Me'ava and all the rest of it. So everybody wonders, why did the Rambam introduce free will, the whole concept of free will, in the middle of the book of repentance? And uh, as I say, if you have the book Allah Tshuva from Reb Soloveitchik, he's got a very beautiful explanation, which I'm not going to uh, go into now. But I just want to show you the basic concept of the Rambam. Rambam says, the beginning of Allah Tshuva, chapter 5, and it's the middle of the page. Rashut l'chaladam netuna. Man has free choice, right? Man meaning human beings, okay? If you want to go in the good path, and you want to be a tzaddik, we should be a perfectly okay. If you want to go the other way, permission is granted. Of course, then the question is, when uh, para we, we read, by the time you get to plague number six in this week's parasha, you already see Vaychazek Hashem at Leiv Paro. We always understand that as meaning that Pharaoh has taken away, uh, excuse me, God has taken away from Pharaoh free will, free choice. Because now God is forcing him, taking away, hardening his heart to make him do whatever he is being guided to do by Hashem. And for the Rambam, this is a very serious question. How can God, even from someone like Pharaoh, deny him the essential, essential element of Rashut, of free choice. That's the Rambam's famous question, and this whole paragraph in front of you, I just want to show you very briefly what the Rambam says, an incredibly difficult concept, but this is really answer number one to the, to, to the question that the Rambam gives an answer. It's also in the Shemona Prakim, it's, it's found in a number of places. So the Rambam says like this, he says the following, Efshar, 
This is sex six one. It says in the middle of the page. A person could do a very big sin. So many sins. He's so steeped in, in evil. Till he's brought before the, the, the heavenly judge. He's so evil that he is incapable of doing teshuva. God takes away from that person the ability to reflect and to think over what he's done, which is so evil. Uh, I'm reminded always when I teach this that I saw the BBC did a recreation of the last moments in the bunker in Berlin in 1945 where the evil Russia was just on the verge of, of committing suicide. And he gives a speech, that evil man, to the, to, his, to the people left with him. And he says, keep up this and do this and do that. And of course, keep up the fight against the Jews. That's what he said moments before he killed himself. And you say to yourself, that riches, that level of evil, is, it, it, it's what the Raman talking about. The man was so steeped in doing this, this terrible, terrible evil that he'd done for so many years already, there's he, he, no way he was going to come out of that. There's no way he's ever going to come out of it. And this is what Rambam is saying. There are certain characters in, in life, certain characters in uh, history, Stalin and uh, uh, you go back to, I don't know, all the different uh, evil people that we've heard of, Khamenevsky, and all these, all these names that we have from history. These are people that we believe that the possibility of tshuva has been removed from them. And it's a unique situation. Rambam is saying generally, even a very bad, bad guy, you know, someone is really a bad guy, but they can, they can turn around. They can repent. But when you're so steeped in evil, I don't know where the, 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 uh, the, cross, you know, where the line is where you cross over. Uh, I, th- that's a good question. Ramam doesn't sort of uh, elaborate on that. But I think we know instinctively there are certain people, they just, that's it, they're done. There's no way that they can do tshuva. And that's the answer for the Rambam for, for Para. Everybody else has the chance to repent. When it comes to Pharaoh, tshuva is, is held back from him. That's Vaychazek Hashem at Lev Paro. He is denied the possibility of repentance. That's answer number one. I think it's very well known. But not easy, because Rambam is basically saying that there will be exceptions to the rule in the world that we live in. Very rare exceptions, I have to add, but exceptions nevertheless. Other, three other solutions, some of which are, are very radical. The, but the one I like, actually, of all of them, is the, one, is the next one, the Sephorno and, in fact, the Beta Levi, Reb Soloveitchik uh, from New York, his, gra- his great-grandfather, who he's named after, uh, Yoshi Be'er Soloveitchik, the Beta Levi, uh, from uh, Lithuania, also wrote the same thing. And they give a different twist. They say like this, they say that, in fact, what Hashem wanted is Paro to s- let the people go willingly, right? And of course, he doesn't want to let them go. You know, right to the bitter end, he's, he's holding out. So basically, what the, um, the Beta Levi says, Beta Levi and various others uh, try to suggest, is that hardening his heart means that Pharaoh was given the ability to withstand the pressure. It's like a person who comes up to you, and God forbid, they're holding a baseball bat, and they want to hit you on the head. So you put on a helmet, so if they hit you, you can, you can stand the, 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 the schmice, you can stand the hit for a little bit. Okay? And it's like protecting you. So what's happening here is that Pharaoh's free will is being hardened so that he can withstand the pressure 
and come to a balanced, if that's the word to describe, a balanced choice of sending the Jews away. In other words, the hardening of the heart is not taking away free will, but it's actually guaranteeing free will. I don't know if that makes sense. It's literally the opposite point of view to the Rambam. Literally the opposite. But of course, what the Beta Levi does is doesn't make power into an exception to what is otherwise a very significant rule around the world that everybody has free choice. Let, let me show you in the text because it comes out, I think, pretty clear. Bottom of page two, and I'll just read this through very quickly. Why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? You'll say to me, you say in Ivrit, Zelofer. Right? It's not fair what he did to Par. It's not fair. Zelofer. Umachata Par, poor old Pharaoh, right? What did he sin? If God hardened his heart, then, you know, he completes, uh, uh, it wasn't, you know, as you say, it wasn't me, Gav, as they say in English. It wasn't me. I didn't do it. And, you know, you can get away with it. So why, what's going on here? And the Beit Levi says, many people ask the question, what's the whole uh, uh, situation here with Pharaoh? He wants to suggest, although he doesn't quote the Sephona, the Sephona says a very similar thing. What is Pharaoh's real desire? He doesn't want to send them away. He wants to keep them. And the plague makes him go against his desire, makes him send them away. Um, and therefore, he's, being, he's sending them away out of necessity, because he's being forced by the plague. So if it's being done by force, he can always argue, you know, I'm not responsible, I was pushed into it. As it says, just to go to the next page, when you're forced, you're not praised, and you're not denigrated. You know, it's something that you just can't control. However, so God hardened his heart, not that he should now not want to send them, he would take away from Pharaoh the fear of the plague, in other words, now it's like wearing a protective hat on his head that he can stand the blows. And now the plague will not be forcing him to do anything because he's got some sort of internal way of dealing with that pressure. And therefore he now will be in a position where he is not being forced to send them, but he's back to an even playing field where, in fact, he doesn't want to send them. He doesn't, in essence, he doesn't want to. He's being forced by the plagues. And hardening his heart gives him the, the, the ability to withstand the pressure of the plague. And therefore, he's back to square one, and he doesn't want to send them. And, of course, that means he's going to be punished for what he did. Even if he's sent because of being forced, then you could argue that he's um, not to be blamed. And you can't hold him accountable. So what the Beta Levi does is go exactly the opposite of the Rambam. Rambam says, of course, everybody has free will. And Pharaoh was one of the few people in history that was taken away. Says Beta Levi, quite the opposite. Pharaoh, in fact, 
had a situation where he's being forced to do something because of the plagues. So you give him hardening of the heart, a bit of, a bit of uh, angina over here, spiritual angina. What do you do in the consequence? You say to him, you've hardened his heart so that he can now withstand the pressure and he can give a balanced decision. Do I want to let them go or do I want to keep them? And of course, Pharaoh's mind, he wants to keep them. So the playing field is level all over again. I hope that kind of makes sense. You know, sort of two different perspectives. Two different perspectives. Beta Levi on one side and Rambam on the other side. I think he's also a kind of like half angry, but that sometimes uh, explains a video where he says, let's say, he is happy that he is uh, not eating in a chazir or pig. Yeah. yeah. The next shelf is okay, he's not even going in a in a non kosher restaurant, and, and, and the next level would be okay, now I'm going to a more kosher restaurant. Correct. And then it, and it then moves. Yes, and the, the same goes with, with, with the free will when you are doing against Going them, downhill. So yeah, that's down, a, so, Rav Desta so, talks about that. That's a, that's so there a, you, you, you also would see that because he's always no, 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 so now his level of Bechirah goes in distance down, so he correct. more easily can say no. Correct, correct. And therefore you're trying to keep balance. That's really what it boils down to in the, in the situation, right? Rabbah is quite happy to say Pharaoh's an exception. Beta Levi says, not so much. We've got to look at it from a different perspective. My favorite answer, not necessarily the best answer here, is from Rav Goran. I like mentioning him because he is so original. And I'll, I'll tell you a little story. About two or three months ago, after King Charles became King Charles, not Prince Charles, um, there, was a, there was a news item. And the news item was like this, that there was a, a big conference, a climate change conference, COP, I don't know what they call it, something like that. They held it in Scotland a few years ago, and this time round, I've forgotten where it was going to be, or where it will be, and the whole discussion initially was whether the new Prime Minister of England was going to go or not, and the same discussion about Charles. Now, as Prince Charles, he could go, because he was very much vocal in his day, has been very vocal about climate, issues of climate. As King Charles, they said to him, you can't go. He was told by his advisors, told by the government, told by everybody, because if you go, you are lending a certain amount of, uh, uh, what's the word, you're proving of something, which in the end of the day may not be to the interests of the country because of other considerations. Who knows what's going on? Maybe he'll upset the oil companies. Maybe he'll upset this one or that. A million and one different considerations. As king, he has a different level of awareness and responsibility than he had as prince. It's a, it was a, a news item literally about, I don't know, two or three months ago. Fascinating. And, it, and what Rav Gorin is basically going to argue, he says that in fact, when we talk about a king of a country, he has in fact two levels of free choice. He has personal free will, and then he has diplomatic free will. A very interesting thought, because it's so true. There are certain things which on a personal level you can do, but as a diplomat, you can't do. We know that Golda Meir, in the, what was it, in the, in the 40s already, was having uh, behind-the-scenes conversations with... Jordan, I think, with uh, one of the Hussein's, or wherever it was before Hussein, I remember. There's, there's famous stories like that, but he never got publicized. 
Because this could never become public knowledge because of the fallout, the implication that it would have, not only um, you know, for, for, for the new state of Israel, but certainly for Jordan as well. And all of these behind-the-scenes things that go on, we know they go on, and thank God that they go on. There was a very nice, interesting ask in the Jerusalem Post last week about the head of Tzahal, I think, is just now giving up. And he spoke a lot about the connection with America in terms of the, uh, uh, the, 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 the military connection. He said, the politicians maybe are close, maybe are not so close, but we are always going to be very close because we're working together. We have something to give to the Americans, and the Americans have something to give to us. And that was very interesting to read because, again, behind the scenes, it's, much, it's more comforting to know, even if we're not told very often, what is really the state of play, what is really happening. So Rav Garan argues that this is what's going on here with Paro. Paro, in his initial free will, free choice, his personal free choice, he made terrible choices. He made choices which not only was his own bad choice, but also because of the mood of the country, which was so against the, uh, letting the slaves leave, this affected him as well, personally. But of course, he still had the option to change and to set the Jews out. But now it became, once it's become the will of the people, then his free will has changed completely to be the free will of the people, meaning he's on that different level, not of Bechira, personal choice, but of Bechira, political choice. And there are, in fact, two different levels of choice in that person's life. I, I find that interesting. Let me show you the text. Interesting. It becomes correct. Absolutely, absolutely correct. And, and this is what he brings. Out. I just want to show you. Basically, I, t- I tell you what. I don't even think that it's a difference between this and that. It's all the same. Excuse me. It may be actually be all the same. You may, you may be actually right. Let's have a. Let's have. I think you're right. Let's. Have, I just want to show you the text because I've got one more thing to share with you, which is so out of the box that I'll, I'm. I'm just going to leave you to to ponder on it at the end. But listen to this. Sec, this is page three. It's a, it's the um, second paragraph. He says. He says, what it says in Mishle, you know, for Rabbi Goran, this is obvious. I mean, Mishle is something I, I aspire to, to, to understand one day. Right, the, the flow of water, or the streams of water, represent the heart of the king and the hand of God. According to whatever he wants, he will uh, incline him. In other words, you're always in the hand of Hashem. You're, if you're a leader, particularly. Yotzei can't comes out of this, everybody has the, the ability to choose for themselves. Wow. Kings do not have free choice. Not completely, um, not saying not, not, they're without free, no. They have restrictions, they have limitations. Therefore with Pharaoh, that's what it means when his heart is hardened, meaning that that personal free choice is taken away from him. He's now bound by the choice of Melech, what he has to do as a king. To do good or to do evil is in the hands of God. 
נשאלת השאלה, אם כן, למה ניתלה מאמלת זכות, האלמנטרית, good Hebrew word, the basic זכות, the elementary זכות, של כל בשר ודם, why is the king deprived of such a, a, a basic right to have free choice, for, like everybody else? And he says another question. Why should he be punished? If he's not doing his own free will anymore, he's, he's as king having to make those choices, why then should you go and punish him? And why should he be rewarded? If he does a good thing, he's being forced to do what he has to do. Ella says Rav what's going on? This is so interesting. Two levels of choice. As a king. First level is personal choice. As a human being. Like everybody else, he can choose good, evil, etc., etc. But what's the second level? He can act as a king, as, a, in, as we would say with a political point of view. And there is reflecting the will of the people. What the people want is what the king has to give them, right? He has to listen to the will of the people. That choice as a king. That's when God stepped in. And God made the king now become so uh, bound up in his evil, etc., etc., that that element of free choice was overtaken by Hashem. Right? So what, was, what, what Rav Gorin is arguing, he wasn't taken out of the equation of free will. His personal free choice was always there. But now, as Melech, on that second level of free will, that was affected. And that's what Hashem did as a punishment to him. And that's what we're talking about when it says God hardened his heart. Very creative, this. Very creative. And to a certain extent, as I say, quite interesting because it's true. What a king can, can or cannot, or a prime minister or, or a president of a country, whatever it may be, can do is not necessarily what you and I can do, you know, on an everyday basis. Um, there's, a, there's a, a great story which just highlights the opposite of this. I just have to share this because she was a, a very wonderful person. We had a neighbor in, in Hendon in London who worked for Princess Diana. And I, I'm reminded of this beautiful story. What happened was she went to, she was a dressmaker, this lady, not alive anymore. Yeah. And uh, very, very interesting. She went to do a fitting for Diana the first week Diana had for her tea and biscuits, cookies, whatever you want to call them. And the very from lady, she had the tea. That was fine, but she did not. She said the biscuits, the cookies are not kosher, and explained what kosher was. Next week, she goes back for fitting number two. And what happened was there was tea and there were kosher cookies. So she asked Diana, you know, what the, thank you very much. But is there, you know, what the, you shouldn't have bothered. She said, let me tell you the story. So the story was she had a lady-in-waiting that she sent to Harrods. Everyone's heard of Harrods in London. Harrods does not have a kosher section. So this lady walks in and says, I want kosher cookies and for Diana. And of course, the manager flipped because he hasn't got kosher cookies to give her. So the, the lady-in-waiting goes back to Diana. And Diana said, this is not acceptable. Diana went herself to Harrods. Now, that's when the manager really had a heart attack. Because in walks Princess Diana asking for kosher cookies. True story. So what did they do? They sent a, a guy, a car or a, a bike, 
to Selfridge, another big store in London, where they do have kosher, to bring the cookies to Harris to give to Diana to take back to that. Now, why do I tell you this beautiful story? It says a lot about Princess Diana. But more to the point, it's where we don't expect that person to behave like that. And she did. She knew her position. She knew who she was as a princess. But she was also a very, very, very special person and cared for the sensibility of the person working for her, if she needed kosher, I'll go myself. What we don't expect her to do, like Rav Goran says, normally the clean will not do this. But in this case, it, put, it makes the point that she went out of a way which shows how incredibly sensitive she really was. I love telling that story because it's an absolute true story. Um, I, my mouth dropped the first time I heard it, and I love telling it over. The reality of what we're saying over here is so far that either, again, according to Rambam, Pair is an exception. According to Beta Levi, you're giving him the ability to withstand the pressure of the play, so he can make a, 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 leving, a, a level playing field choice. According to Rav Goran, it's all to do about two levels of choice. What is being affected is the king's level as a king. Right? His own personal choice still exists, but as a king, now he's being manipulated or he's being affected by Hashem because of all of the evil that he's done and he's and not only him, but the people around him, and his behavior now reflects the choice that the people have made, firstly to afflict the Jews, and then not to send them away. That's the hardening of Pharaoh's heart on that, what we would call political level. Uh, Can I ask a question? Please, yeah. Yeah, the voice of the people. But, Vox Populari. Isn't there quite a lot of evidence to suggest, especially as the plays went on, that the people around him and his advisors and presumably the people as well were saying, look, you know, this is enough, we can't take yeah, this. Yeah. Let them go. Let them go. So isn't there yeah. a contradiction in yeah. yeah. Yeah, he wants to argue here, Rav Goran wants to say that in essence, if they were wanting to people to leave, to let them go, it was because of only of pressure, not because they really wanted them to go. Why would you want to lose that wonderful cleaner and that wonderful person that does your laundry and the wonderful person that does the sponge and everybody else that comes in because of, you know, what's going on with the political system in Egypt. So, so what I'm trying to say is that maybe we're going to have to be slightly creative in terms of what was going on on the, on the ground level, right? And you're right. The evidence is that as the plagues went on, it got more and more difficult to resist. But Rav Goran wants to argue that they made their bed, they had to lie in it from day one with the plague of blood to say... From that moment on, the nation was definitely, at least initially, against sending the Jews away. Now, you're right. Later on, it did change. But more to the point, what Rav Goran wants to point out is that, in essence, the king was affected by that overall decision and its state. Not necessarily by the people, I would argue, but maybe by him personally. It's, 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 a, great, it's a good question, right? And if Rav Goran was in the room, I'd ask him and see what, what answer he would give, because he asked a good question. Okay, but I think I, what I like about this answer is that it's absolutely true that the kings and queens have different levels of responsibility and choice than the regular amcha, the regular people in and around. Right? So I like that idea that you can differentiate two levels of free choice, even though your question is a great question. And I, I, my answer was really not very good, <laughs> I'm going to say. Better question than the answer. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with you... Well, there is some support at the, at the 
he still had all those people. Yeah. Yeah, and that's it. And, that, and clearly, that reflects not that just a few to support. So you can argue from both sides. No, Poseida. And I think that that may be the answer that one can give. There's certainly elements. It wasn't across the board that everybody wanted them to leave, and it wasn't across the board that everybody wanted them to stay, but there clearly was a very complicated dynamic going on in Egypt, which you know maybe needs more uh, um, focus and study. It's, it, it's an interesting thing. Uh, you give me something to take away and look at because that's that's beautiful. I just want to get to the third point. And I'll take another, the final questions at the end. The third the third point which I, I came across and not to do with para, but to do with a, a sugi that I'm teaching uh, outside, which is in Sefer Shmuel, and it talks about the sons of Eli, and it says there the sons of Eli were so bad, right? They they did bad things in the in the Mishkan. That it says, that they couldn't uh, go back on what they did. Hashem wanted them to die. A big question there, the Radak raises a massive question. What about, you know, were they that evil? Were they like Pharaoh? I mean, you can't really compare them to Pharaoh to say they would lose free will to do repentance. They couldn't do Teshuvah. And it's a very big problem there, which is for another shear, for another time, to talk about the sons of Eli. But this concept, which I have in front of you, section 3, from um, a rabbi called Yehuda Eisenberg, He's a teacher at Barilan, and I heard this shear from him when he came to London many, many years ago. Um, and it, very, very interesting. He wants to redefine what hardening the heart means. Right? He wants to say another interpretation completely, and the way he does it, he looks for those comparative events where it says people had their hearts hardened. Where do we find it? He says we find it by a gentleman called Sichon, a war which came later on when the Jews were coming to Eretz Israel. They wanted to go through the land of Sichon, and he said no, and he refused to let them in. They went, they had a big war. Sichon lost. And then he says later on, also with Yoshua in Eretz Israel, there was a coalition against the Jews after the story with the Givonim and the whole thing that was going on there. Again, a question that they seemed to be inspired to fight Amisol, even though. Jericho had fallen, and I had fallen, all those things that happened. Nevertheless, there was a coalition to fight against the Jews. Hashem hardened their hearts. And Rav Eisenberg says the following. He says, in both situations of Sichon and the story with Yeshua, the hardening of the heart is actually reflecting a logical decision. What does he mean? He says like this. He says, with Sichon, if you look carefully at the story, there was a previous battle with Melech Edom. And Melech Edom had not even a battle. He said to the, to the nation of Israel, don't come near me, go around, and they went around. So Sichon was battle number two. And he sees his friend, Melech Edom, pushing the Jews away from, Melech, from Eretz Edom. So he says to himself, logically, wow, if they can do it, I can do it. And he's prepared to go to war on this. Now you'll say to me, does that make sense? And in the mind of someone like Sichon, you argue it would have made sense because logically, since he saw his friends succeed, he will succeed. It's a logic. Is it a real logic? The answer is no, because you're fighting the God of Israel. You're making a terrible mistake. And in fact, Rav Eisenberg argues that hardening the heart means Hashem provides the, the, the situation whereby the man involved, or the king, or the leader involved, makes that mistake. He makes that logical conclusion, which is an error. 
It's, an, it's a wrong logical conclusion. The same with the people fighting Yoshua. They felt that if they could make a coalition and come together, they could push out the Jews. And they're making a terrible, terrible mistake. At that point, Hashem provides the, the, the situation where they themselves can come to that logical conclusion, which is in fact the worst thing that they ever decided because it brings about their downfall. And he says beautifully, maybe this is what's going on with Pharaoh. In essence, what's happening with Pharaoh is that not, God forbid, he's losing free choice. But what Hashem is doing is providing a series of, 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 of uh, circumstances around him which make him want to do what he does in such an evil way to bring him down. He logically says to himself, we're still mighty, we're still great. You know, the Egyptian uh, uh, culture, the Egyptian society was, was, was the most developed um, uh, society in the world. Everything we know about Egypt. And therefore, logically, maybe this is what Pharaoh thought. And why would he say logically to do what he did against the Jews and even to not let them go? Because this made perfect sense to him in terms of the situation in which he found himself in which they found themselves. So, what Rav Eisenberg wants to suggest, very simply, without getting into the, the detail here, hardening the heart is not God affecting free will, it's God providing circumstance where the person himself literally hangs himself with his own, his own rope. He brings about, through a logical conclusion, uh, a, a decision which will, in fact, destroy, self-destructive. I'll show you in the text what he says. Uh, it's the last six lines on page three. He says, although we don't see the words chizukalev with sichon, sichon he pula hegyonit. What sichon did made logical sense. In the situation in which he finds himself. Sichon ain't chalash meidom. He's no weaker than Edom, and Edom got to push the Jews out. Maybe Sichon will do the same. Ve'im Yisrael nasogul amaritzvah shomelech Edom. They believe they can ace the crowd. If they didn't want to start a war with with the king of Edom, ain't siba shleyasukein amaritzvah shos Sichon. Why would they start a war with Sichon? Ubechol zot kashem mitaem Moshe et Akram. Say for the way Moses describes this battle in the book of Devarim. Who must be Mashit Rachesh Mechurakalem? He says what went on behind the scenes. The Tunim Shasichon Echlit Apiem, Ayuegionim, Sicho made logical decisions for himself. Avaladna Tunim Alalusi Peklo Hashem. It was based on data, on information which was in fact provided by God. Kadei She Yisrael Yuchlu Lichboshet Atso, so that the Jews will conquer his land. And maybe that's what's going on with Pharaoh. In the end of the day, what's got to happen? That the, the society, everything that Pharaoh represents, everything that he stands for, has got to be annihilated. It's got to be annulled. Right? The idolatry. The Jews are coming into the world to receive the Torah. They're coming to bring the name of Hashem, bringing the presence of God in the Shekhinah into the world. And in order to achieve that, clearly, there's got to be a stage before that where people like Pharaoh have to be diminished, annihilated, whatever the word is, have to be taken out of, out of the picture completely. It's a bit like a Amalek. Amalek represents that anti-God stance. You've got to take Amalek away in order to bring Hashem into the world so that people can see clearly. 
It's, it's so interesting. Again, such an unusual interpretation. Not necessarily pshat. I wouldn't say this is pshat by any stretch of the imagination, but what an interesting thought. And I just want to show you page four, because this is my, my cute end of the shir. Um, I just a quote here from, this is um, the good old William Shakespeare, where he talks about the phrase, hoist with his own petard, which translated means blown up with his own bomb. Basically, what happened is that when it comes to Paro, Paro is a gentleman who is eventually destroyed with his own sense of importance, with his own sense of logic. According to Rav Eisenberg, interesting, the final quote from Bashevis Singer, whether or not you like this, we must believe in free will, we have no choice, I love that. Uh, it's a little thing that you can hang on your, fri- you know, your fridge when you go home. Uh, it's very cute. And the bottom line of what we're saying, let me just review very briefly, because I, I, I probably rushed this too fast, but I, I wanted to get the, the broad picture. What we've seen, two things. Number one, we saw a bit of Egyptology, which I hope you either liked or not, take or leave it, but I thought it was interesting. And secondly, this whole discussion about whether there was a hardening of the heart, how it worked, what exactly happened, free will, not free will, is very challenging, right? Normally this would be, you know, a lecture which probably should go on for another hour at least. But I wanted to show you just the range of creativity of the Mephorshim. It's so interesting. We're doing Rambam 12th century, Rav Goran 20th century, Rav Eisenberg, still a contemporary, still around. All these different rabbis are very challenged by this and their creativity in trying to find a solution for this very fundamental question is very, very exciting. It's inspiring. And I hope maybe I can leave you with that sense of inspiration uh, to go through the rest of this so-called winter that we're having. I'm not quite sure what, what we call it outside, but it certainly doesn't look like winter. Um, thank you again so much for being able to share with you, allowing me to share with you some of these thoughts. And Bezrat Hashem, we'll see each other again very, very soon. We don't wish anybody to be sick, but maybe if people go away on vacations or something. We'll, we'll, Hashem. we'll look forward. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening.